For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Here we go. Yes, indeed, we are striking up the NFL Films music for this. And why not? Because this episode of the show was focused on Stanford NFL past, present, and future. Glad you're here with us for it on the TreeCast with Troy Clarity, presented by the Believe Podcast Network. It is Wednesday, August 26th, 2020. Thank you for joining us on the show. Hope you are staying safe. Hope you are being kind to others and to everyone that you see. And hope that you are doing whatever you need to do and whatever you can to make sure that we stop the spread and beat COVID-19. Of course, we're also glad that you're here with us, joining us on the show. I'm in Detroit Clarity. Looking forward to bringing you a couple of great chats. Our big special guest for this week is a Stanford football all-time great, currently covering the NFL for CBS. You see him all the time in the booth for CBS. And oh, by the way, he's got a gold jacket from the Pro Football Hall of Fame, James Lofton. Stanford class of 78. You're going to hear from him coming up a bit later on in the show. Also, I want to get some thoughts on what the current situation means for potential Stanford draftees. And there are certainly two in particular who are, at this rate, potential first-round draft picks. What does moving to winter and spring at best mean for Walker Little and Paul Snadebo? We're going to chat with Tony Pauline from ProFootballNetwork.com, an NFL draft analyst, for that website and also the co-host of the Draft Analyst Podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. Tony's been covering the draft for a long, long time. Looking forward to getting his thoughts on uh, what this could all mean. So we got a couple of great chats for coming up for you on this edition of the show. Troy Clarity here with you. 27 years of following Stanford football and Stanford sports underneath my belt. Also a Pac-12 Network play-by-play announcer. And you can give me the follow on Twitter, at Troy Clarity. Last name is spelled C-L-A-R-D-Y, at Troy Clarity. And, of course, a big time thanks for those of you, to those of you, who have listened and checked us out on the Believe Podcast Network from the start, at least from joining the podcast network. We've been doing this the show since 2015, but uh, joined Believe back in February. If you missed any previous shows, I highly suggest you head to the vault uh, via your favorite listening device and app. Uh, previous chats with David Shaw, who we caught up with last week, uh, Senator Cory Booker back in late May, Brevin Knight uh, in that same episode, uh, Stanford football greats like Troy Walters. Uh, so many great interviews we've had. Looking forward to bringing you more as we go along. First, let's get you three things you need to know around Stanford athletics. Let's get to number one. <laughs> Congratulations to seven current and former members of the Stanford women's swimming and diving team for being named to the U.S. women's national team. Senior Brooke Forty, incoming freshman Lily Nordman and Reagan Smith, and former Cardinal Katie Draybot, Ella Easton, Simone Manuel, and Katie Ledecky. Those seven young ladies will represent Stanford and the nation. Brooke Forty's dad, Pat, by the way, of course, as many of you, I believe, know, is a uh, senior uh, college football writer for Sports Illustrated. And Pat actually joined us um, last month. So if you want to go back in the vault and listen to that chat we had with him, you're more than welcome to do that, too. Also, Stanford women's swimming and diving uh, coach uh, Greg Meehan will serve as the Olympic women's swimming head coach. So congratulations to all. And let the buildup to Tokyo begin again. Let's get to number two. Really cool edition of Pac-12 Unlocked. Uh, Pac-12 Network, in lieu of 
real live games, unfortunately, has, has, has been innovative. And they've also done a great job, I think, of taking, taking us behind the tent and behind the scenes of what the student athletes have been up to over the past few months. And Pac-12 unlocked part of that initiative. And this week, an episode featuring Stanford women's lacrosse's Alex Sai. She's a senior from La Jolla, and she takes us through quarantine life. If you're going to be on quarantine, La Jolla is not a bad place to be for that. And, and also her work in helping food banks get food to those in need as we all deal with COVID-19. Alex, by the way, also a senior staff writer for the Stanford Daily. I, I did not realize that. Uh, Pac-12 Unlocked, they do a fantastic job, as mentioned, going behind the scenes with the student-athletes. And you can check that out at pac-12.com. Pac-12 Unlocked featuring Alex Sai from Stanford's Women's Lacrosse. Let's finish it up with number three. Hey, how's Bryce Love doing in Washington? Yeah, well, he's he's doing pretty well for the Washington football team. One, he's back on the field finally after missing his rookie season after that uh, ACL tear in the 2018 big game that ended his Stanford career. Two, with Adrian Peterson not practicing and Darius Geis released due to legal circumstances, Love has moved up the depth chart and he's been getting steady work in the running back spot and getting steady work with the ones for much of Washington's training camp. Uh, neat quote from uh, Ron Rivera, the, uh, the Washington football team head coach, who told the press last week, quote, This is a guy who could be an every down back for you. He's an explosive, dynamic player. End of quote from Ron Rivera. High praise, of course, from a former Cal Bear. Peterson is expected to start when the season begins, but uh, Love is turning heads and opening eyes right now, which is one of the best-case scenarios for Bryce Love in his football career at this point, and that is certainly great to see. Those are three things. Stanford NFL past and present with James Lofton coming up later on in the show. Before that, Stanford NFL future with Tony Pauline of ProFootballNetwork.com. But first, it's great to welcome these guys back. NBA playoffs, Stanley Cup playoffs in full swing. And our friends at Bet Online, of course, they have you covered. So take full advantage of sports being back and get in on the action with hundreds of odds, futures, and props for you to bet on. And there's always the online casino as well. It never, ever closes. So head to betonline.ag today and sign up to receive your welcome bonus on your first deposit. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Well, the NFL draft is scheduled to be held, as normal, late April of next year. That could be very interesting timing for some NFL draft prospects, especially in the conferences that, as of right now, are looking to play in the winter or in the spring. Stanford, of course, is in that category, and let's talk about that right now with longtime draft expert. I've been reading his stuff for years and finally get a chance to talk to him, I believe, for the first time. I can't believe this is happening. NFL draft analyst for the Pro Football Net for ProFootballNetwork.com and also the co-host of the Draft Analyst Podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. Good to get that Believe Synergy in here. Pleasure to welcome in here Tony Pauline. Tony, thanks a bunch. We appreciate the time. How are you doing today? I'm okay. Thanks for having me. You got it. You got it. Great to get you in here. And uh, I'll get your thoughts on, on Stanford-specific guys a bit later on in the chat here in a couple moments or so. But, but, but overall, grand scheme of things, what's your initial read on the Big Ten and the Pac-12 moving potentially, hopefully, to winter slash spring and what potential impact that could have on the NFL draft as a whole? It didn't surprise me with, with the Pac-12 because I, I thought that that was going to be the situation all along for a variety of reasons. So that was not a surprise at all. The Big Ten, I think, caught a lot of people off guard. I think they went about it the wrong way. I thought it was something that primarily came out of left field. I mean, if you remember the story, it, was, it seemed like it was all done and said and came about in a 48-hour period, whereas opposed to the uh, Pac-12, I think in the back of everyone's minds, people thought that they were not going to play this fall. And if they did play in the fall, it may be a season that was delayed until November or so. But I think the Big, the Big Ten really went about it the wrong way. And we're seeing repercussions now. You're seeing players 
uh, uh, Fields from Ohio State starting a petition. You're seeing the the, uh, the parents speak out, and I think it's going to hurt them not only on the football field, not only in the draft rooms. I, I think it's going to have some adverse effects when it comes to recruiting as well. Yeah, and, and certainly the, uh, the the public opinion uh, for for what for what that's worth certainly seems to be very very different with how the Big Ten handled things and how the Pac-12 handled things, even though it's a, it's pretty much the exact same decision. Um, let's talk about Stanford guys because there are a couple I'd seen popping up in some in some way too early mock drafts as soon as the uh, as soon as the 2020 draft was done, uh, but a couple of guys who seem to be popping up in the first round, if not relatively close to it, for Stanford. Paul Snadebo, the cornerback, and Walker Little, the left tackle, each of those guys, you know, obviously Walker Little coming off of an injury and Paul Snadebo, a slow start to last year, but improved as the year went along and started to play at the level that most expected of him. Uh, what, what's your read on those guys as far as being NFL draft viable at this point? Yeah, I think uh, those guys will both have to enter the draft to kind of salvage any sort of redemption for uh, Stanford in the 2021 draft because they're the only two draftable guys on the depth chart right now. And I think when all is said and done, these are two guys that will not only enter the draft, but if the season does not begin, the, the 2020 college season does not begin before 2021, I think they're going to skip the season and start to prepare for the draft. Walker Little, I get a lot of differing opinions. I like him a lot. I, I am an old school guy that prioritizes pure left tackles, and that's what Walker Little is. He's got excellent length. He's a good athlete. He blocks with terrific fundamentals. You'll watch him. He's got great knee bend, very agile, very effective out on the second level. Not the strongest guy in the world, but a smart guy who uses good body positioning and angles and fundamentals to protect the blind side of his quarterback. And that's always a high priority come draft day. I mean, if you remember just a few months ago, everyone was talking about Mickey Beckton and Jedrick Wills. And who was the first tackle selected? Andrew Thomas, the most pure left tackle in the draft. So I, I think Walker Little's got that going for him. But the fact is this, you know, it's going to be a situation where he hasn't played much football the past two years. As you said, you know, he was injured in 2019 and he got injured right at the beginning of the year in that game against Northwestern. So he's going to have almost two years of not playing football. That's always a danger for everybody. I have him graded as a first round pick from people I've talked to in the league. He's more of a late first rounder early second round guy, but I think when all is said and done, his ability to play left tackle in the NFL will trump everything, which I think is going to push him probably into the middle part of round one. Meanwhile, Paul Snadebo also trying to uh, stay in that mix as well. What are some things that you're, that you're reading up on him? Yeah, I'm not as high as a Debo as others are. I, you know, uh, he's a big, tall corner. He's very physical. He doesn't back down to the challenge. Uh, but he's got a lot of lapses and he's got a lot of holes in his game. I mean, if you remember early on last season in that game against Central Florida, mm -hmm. he just got beaten like a drum by Gabe Davis, who was a terrific receiver. And as far as I'm concerned, was underdrafted by the Buffalo Bills in the fourth round. But, but Adebo, I, I mean, he, his, his appeal is his size because everyone wants those taller physical corners these days. And that's what he is. But he doesn't play very fast. I mean, he made time in the four fours, but if you watch him, you know, he's very slow in transition, which I mean, he's not quick flipping his hips. He does a lot of catching up, running, trying to chase guys downfield. He's not, he struggles making plays with his back to the ball. I think he's got great upside, but I think he needs a lot, a lot of work on his game, needs to improve, say, the fundamentals and the techniques that Walker Little has. That's always a dangerous thing at the cornerback position, especially when a guy struggles making plays with his back to the ball. I think he's a second-day pick. I think – let's make a comparison here. I, had, I, had Jaylen, I would have Jalen Johnson of Utah graded higher than Paulson Adebo, and Jalen Johnson went in the second day of last year's draft. Interesting. Uh, any other potential guys who could potentially have been in the mix uh, to, to, be, to have been considered for the NFL draft, at least as of right now, uh, for, for Stanford at this point? Well, I, I mean, Jordan Fox, the outside linebacker, is someone who I think would have benefited from a good senior campaign. Uh, I have him graded as a priority free agent, as do most scouts. Decent size, six foot two, 230 pounds, plays relatively fast, a tough, smart guy. 
not the greatest athlete in the world, but a real good football player. You know, I, I think Jordan Fox, it's one, he's one of those guys that if they play in January, he would probably benefit from playing the season. His draft stock could benefit from playing the season by having a, a good year. After that, it, it, it's really, there's not much else on the depth chart. I mean, surprisingly, there's no tight ends coming out of Stanford. And, and it, as we all know, Stanford has been tight end you the past seven years. I see no tight ends. It's all underclassmen heavy as it often is uh, with Stanford. And it's basically Walker Little, uh, Paulson Adebo, and then the run kind of, the uh, well kind of runs dry. Yeah, of course, uh, no tight ends uh, apparently this year, but this it, is shifted over to the wide receivers. That wide receiver room is off the charts, or at least it would have been off the charts um, if they played this fall. Um, you know, Stanford, as you mentioned, tight end you, uh, and, and they've done a very good job over the past, certainly the past dozen years or so, uh, of, of turning out uh, high-quality NFL talent with impact guys who have done some fantastic things. Uh, what's your read on how a Stanford player and how the Stanford program um, – is, is being received in the NFL draft community. It's always well-liked because of the fact that they play an NFL system. So, you know, you let, go back to Andrew Luck. I mean, Andrew Luck, not only was he a, a great quarterback prospect, but he was a natural fit because of the fact that Stanford plays a tight end in tight most of the times, as opposed to having a line, a line up in the slot. They often play two tight ends. They use a fullback. Uh, in a traditional sense where a lot of schools, a lot of colleges on their offense, it's basically a spread offense where they have everybody spread out five offensive linemen and the quarterback and the guy just sits there. So the, the uh, Stanford system, especially from the offensive side of the ball <clears throat> is well liked in the league because it's a natural transition from the college game to the NFL game, which so many other schools, you know, have difficulty with because the coaches basically implement the system to win games and it, and you get a, an athletic quarterback back there with a big arm and he's got two receivers to the right, two receivers to the left, a tight end in the slot. And then all of a sudden you get to the NFL game and everything is pulled in tight. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sometimes that transition is a little more difficult uh, for some of the yellow players, as opposed to Stanford, who's been basically implemented and used to that system playing and practicing for three to four years. And certainly when you're a quarterback in the Stanford system, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, as, as you know, in the NFL, so much of quarterbacking happens between the time the play is called in the huddle and the time of the actual snap, because so many different times, you know, you get the, the greatest play in the world called in the huddle. You turn around, the defense is, is, is not in the spot that you want them to be in. And it's like, well, what do you do? In college, it seems like those decisions are made by the coaches upstairs because everyone gets to the line of scrimmage. They turn, they look at the card, and then they go from there. But, you know, in the NFL quarterback, Quarterbacking in particular, it's just so much more what happens between the snap. Can you get out of a bad play call and, and into a good one? I'd imagine that plays into it uh, a bit as well. Yeah, I, I mean, first of all, to get into Stanford, you got to be a pretty smart guy. That's, that's number one. So, <laughs> so you know, but you, you know you're, you're getting a quarterback from Stanford. He's going to be a pretty smart guy, and he's going to be able to, to take care of those pre-snap reads. And, again, you know, when you're doing pre-snap reads, when there's a fullback behind you, immediately behind you, and you got a tight end lined up in tight, it makes your transition to the NFL a lot easier. All right, so let's uh, wrap it up here on, on this. Um, you know, you are advising a potential NFL draft prospect who is probably going to be picked no later than the second day. Their conference is not playing this fall, potentially aiming for the winter or the spring. How would you advise that prospect? What would you tell them? Would you tell them to, protect, to potentially play in the winter and spring or just hold out and just wait for the draft and go from there? You, I, I mean, the advice would be you, you can't play during the season. Uh, and the, but the problem is, is, you know, if you get injured in a game during a spring or, or the, a season that starts in the spring or February, you could potentially not only be lost for the rest of the college season, but for your rookie season in the NFL. So that, that's a problem right there. It could even be a problem for some of your, you know, your, your, your true sophomores that are highly rated prospects, like the quarterback out of USC. Uh, his name escapes me right now. I probably can't pronounce his name anyway. Who's a true <laughs> sophomore who's going to be a highly rated guy. I mean, if he gets injured in February or March or April, and it's a significant injury. Well, he's not only lost for the what was the two thousand the delayed start of the two thousand twenty season. You could be lost for the two thousand twenty one season. So I think all things considered, 
from a professional point of view, if the guy's going to be a top 100 pick, it makes more, most sense for, for him to basically bypass the season and start to prepare for the draft, start to prepare for, for his uh, next level future because there's so much potentially on the line when you look at it from a financial point of view, from, from you know, basically being well off in the future. Now, if, if the kid wants to play, you, you got to let him play. But I think from a, just from a, a professional point of view, there's too much risk uh, in playing uh, for a delayed start season. And, you know, people talk about preparing for the draft, the combine, the workouts, the pro days and everything. I just look at it from an injury point of view. I, I mean, if you suffer a significant injury in March uh, of 2021, you may not be ready to play until March of 2022. That's that last college season and potentially your, your rookie season in the NFL. Yeah, and college coaches are looking at this as well because that could potentially happen for guys who aren't even thinking about the NFL draft. If they get hurt during the winter and the spring, they might not be available uh, for the fall um, as well. There are just so many different uh, considerations uh, to be taken into account here uh, and so many different uh, interesting facets of all of this. And, of course, uh, the NFL draft affected, and, of course, the Stanford roster will be affected by this as well. Keeping an eye on things from the NFL draft process, uh, from the NFL draft perspective, Tony Pauline from ProFootballNetwork.com and co-host of the Draft Analyst Podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. Tony, thanks a so much. Appreciate the time. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for having me. Appreciate Tony Pauline's time and our thanks to him for joining us on the show. Keaton Slovis, of course, by the way, the USC quarterback uh, that he was uh, <laughs> he was trying to think of. Um, Jordan Fox, I actually hadn't really thought of him in in that mix and as far as NFL draft prospects are concerned. And, and look, you, know, and you, heard, you heard David Shaw and I talk about this a bit on the show last week. There's, there, there's kind of that line as far as guys who are pretty much guaranteed as far as, as, at least as far as anything can be guaranteed these days, but you know, that, that are going to be going pretty high, expected to be going pretty high in the NFL draft at this point. It does not behoove them to play in the winter and the spring. And I think Walker Little and Paul Nadebo both fall in those categories. Jordan Fox, maybe he's a guy who, who was in the category that says, hey, play in the winter and spring, see what happens, ball out, and go from there. So, you know, it just depends upon where you are in the NFL mock draft pecking order these days. And I've seen, you know, Tony Pauline uh, mentioned the top 100 and pretty much pretty consistently uh, Paul Nadebo and Walker Little basically in everyone's top 100 at this point in time. Uh, Walker Little in many first round uh, mock drafts as of right now. Paul Nadebo not too far behind. I've seen him uh, go late in several first round uh, mock drafts and uh, be a second day pick in several others as well. But, you know, maybe, you know, hey, you know, from my own personal selfish standpoint, obviously covering Stanford football, I would love to see those guys come back. If Sanford and Pac-12 football is able to get going again in the winter and the spring, but quite honestly, right now I can't advise them to do so. <laughs> you know, I, I I can't advise them to play in the winter and the spring when there is more money out there uh, for them to have a chance to have access to for playing football. Money that they don't have access to at this point. So you know, would not surprise me at all. I I, I can't recommend. You know, guys like Walker and Paulson coming back. Certainly Panay Sewell, who by all accounts is the best offensive lineman and potentially the best player in the Pac-12 overall. You know, I, I can't recommend him coming back if the Pac-12 fires up in the winter and the spring. So certainly and unfortunately, the roster that we were expecting Stanford to have this fall and the one that we likely would have if things were able to be in a better spot if folks felt better about things and Stanford was able to play in the fall, then we're going to see if they kick things off in the winter and the spring. Rosters have been in flux. David Shaw is aware of that. As mentioned, we talked about that with him um, on last week's show. So some guys have some, some decisions to make. And uh, the NFL draft, which as of right now, still scheduled to go late April of next year to be held in Cleveland, again, as of this point, you know, guys who have their eyes on, on having Roger Goodell call their name at the podium on the first day or having you know, their name called at any point during the NFL draft are certainly in an interesting spot. 
certainly in a big time spot right now. That's Stanford NFL future. What about Stanford NFL's past and present? For that, let's bring in our, our special guest here. And, and, and look, Stanford, I, I've, I'm kind of guilty of forgetting this sometimes myself too, but Stanford has had a sneaky good wide receiver tradition dating back decades. Uh, my personal favorite, Troy Walters, uh, not just because he has a really cool first name. That dude could catch just about anything you threw his way. Uh, more recently, J.J. Arcega-Whiteside, uh, Trenton Irwin as well, uh, Kenny Marjoram, Tony Hill, Ed McCaffrey. So many fantastic wide receivers have come to the farm, but only one is a Pro Football Hall of Famer. Pro Football Hall of Fame class of 2003, Stanford class of 1978, played for five squads in the NFL, and now you see him all the time as an analyst for the NFL on CBS. What a pleasure this is to welcome in James Lofton to the TreeCast. James, thanks a bunch. Appreciate the time. How are you doing today? You know, as you were listing all of those Stanford Cardinals, I had to think of guys who preceded me. Sure. And in that, I came up with Randy Bataha, uh-huh. who was Jim Plunkett's go-to guy, and then they played together with the New England Patriots. Right. And Gene Washington, yep. who was really, I, I think, for me, kind of the king of receivers, because he was just so cool on and off the field. And he played right up the road with the San Francisco 49ers, and he worked in the league office with the National Football League. So uh, Gene Washington and Randy Bataha need to be added to that list. Noted. And certainly uh, well done by you recognizing the uh, the Stanford history there. Uh, I'll get your further thoughts on, on, on your days with Stanford here in a few moments or so. But first, kind of like a like, like the headlines here a little bit, uh, the Pac-12 deciding not to play. Tough decision, but for, I, I think it's the right call uh, that they had to make. Meanwhile, the NFL pressing on with their playing efforts as they are moving on and trying to get this thing going in about two and a half weeks or so. Uh, so far, it seems like the NFL's process uh, is, in playing on has been relatively successful. What do you make of the NFL's process to this point in, in playing on through the pandemic? Well, I I think professional sports and collegiate sports, even though they're the same business, are two different types of businesses. Because what we talk about when we talk about college athletics, and we talk about this more with the Stanford athlete, that they are student athletes. And there are some conferences around the country where they are athletes. And that's what they're looking at them for and what they can do for the university on the field, on the court, on the baseball diamond or wherever. But in the Pac-12, thankfully, they're looking at these young men and young women as student athletes. And if you can't be on campus as, an, as a student, how can you say, well, we'll just bring the athletes in and let them do their thing? So I understand the decision. The NFL, like I said, it is different. I work for CBS, different entity. And the NFL is, is trudging forward. They did it with the draft. They did it with free agency. And they've done a lot of things virtually. And getting off the uh, call with CBS, we're going to be doing a lot of things virtually. We'll do meetings virtually. Even meetings with our own production staffs will be virtually. We'll be in our hotel rooms down the hallway. And we won't even go to a meeting room to meet together. So it seems like it's a whole new world for a lot of us as we all try to adjust and uh, and, and move forward um, in in this day and age. Um, Now, you have three adult children. Uh, David, I remember watching him play um, at Stanford a few years ago when he was suiting up uh, for the Cardinal. Um, You know, as, as as you balance it yourself, if you had to take yourself into being a parent's shoes these days, you know, given everything that we know about how the colleges have approached these things and how it's varied by, by conference to conference and even in some instances from school to school, how comfortable would you have felt in this day and age, you know, sending your children off to, to, to study and compete uh, on campus in this environment? Well, you, you mentioned David and his wife, Emily, who's class of uh, 02 and was on the volleyball team there and they won the national championship. They have three kids my grandkids, my and my wife's grandkids. So we now look at them and they're seven, five and three, and they're in elementary school, preschool, starting pre-K. And you, you have this long range plan for them that you want all these wonderful things to happen. 
but in the short range, you are protecting your kids and you're protecting them whether they're 35 years old or whether they're 15 years old. And so you want for them what's best. And so for a young student athlete, a high school athlete or a collegiate athlete, boy, it's tough to say, sit out a year, let's wait and see how this thing turns out. Because when it first started, and people were talking about, you know, you quarantine for this amount of time, you shut things down. And I thought to myself, we're really not out of the clear until you have a vaccine or you have a treatment. And really, you really need both. And you have to have people who are willing to take those vaccines and those treatments also. So um, it, it, it's crazy. It's a lot crazier than what we expected, but it, it's happened around the world. And it doesn't have, just hasn't happened in your neighborhood. Should be interesting to see how things shake out um, in the uh, weeks and months ahead. And hopefully the Pac-12 is uh, back up to speed and ready to compete uh, by January 1st at the very earliest. And unfortunately, it wipes out what would clearly have been a, a critical season for Stanford A, a national football. championship season. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, clearly. Paved the parade. <laughs> you know, they would have been right oh. there in it until uh, the very end. But, you know. Well, may maybe we'll have a, a fall championship and a spring championship. Who knows? Oh, Who yeah. knows? Maybe then they, so. then they could play together on July 4th. <laughs> Ooh, I like how you think. That would uh, that would be uh, kind oh. of neat. Might throw some things in the fall into a bit of flux, but hey, we'll, we'll cross hey, that bridge you know, when we get there. About that? But uh, Stanford, 4-8 and eight last year, but poised to do some pretty neat things, I thought, this fall, uh, especially on the offensive side of the football, with all the weapons they had bringing, with all the weapons they were bringing back, sure. and a couple of fantastic defensive individual players as well. Uh, you still follow the program very closely. What were some things that you were looking forward to most with Stanford football that you're going to be missing out on now with them not playing this fall? Yeah, uh, the, the one thing in working in football and kind of, thumping your chest. So when I go around and we, we're having the Miami Dolphins or we have the Cleveland Browns, first thing I do is I look at the roster. Where are the Stanford guys? <laughs> Second thing I do, where's the rest of the Pac-12? To make sure that if we beat them on Saturday, that Sunday morning when I'm walking around the field, I go up to the guy from Oregon or Washington State. Hey, uh, you saw the game last night. You saw what happened. So you're very much aware of how your college is doing. And, and how they're performing. And so the four and eight season last year, even though it was disappointing, you know, it's just one of those bumps in the road and you realize that. Mind-blowing run overall, though, for Stanford, especially over the last dozen years, starting with Jim Harbaugh and David Shaw, maintaining it at, uh, and even taking it to a level and, sure. and maintaining it uh, at an even higher level than Harbaugh was able to bring him to before he went on to the San Francisco 49ers. What's impressed you the most about what Stanford has been able to accomplish on the football field over the last decade, taking it to heights that maybe a lot of folks didn't think was possible for a school like Stanford to attain? It is, it is that slow trickle that you see when you examine rosters and you see the number of Stanford players who are playing in the NFL. Mm -hmm. And I think when you, when you think of, you know, a guy having a four or five year career. So if you stretch it out over the last 10 years, we probably had more Stanford players in the NFL than at any other time before. And I think about my graduating class, we had three who were drafted or four who were drafted and, and that was really it. And now you're getting guys drafted, you're getting free agents, you're getting guys who can make the team, and you just see them all over the place, especially on the defensive side of the ball, which really, not that it surprises you, because you years ago, Stanford was the team that threw the football. Well, now everybody throws the football. Now Stanford's the team that runs the football. <laughs> so you see a little different style of play, a little more smash mouth, but you also see those offensive linemen sprinkled around the league. Some of them first round picks, some of them third round picks, some of them free agents, but they tend to stick on teams because they're high quality individuals and coaches know that they can count on these kids. Awesome to have that that Stanford brand kind of represented around oh, yeah. the NFL. And, and, and as you mentioned, you know, coaches and GMs know you get a Stanford kid on the roster, chances are pretty good uh, that you're going to get a good quality of character person there as well who can handle all the things uh, that come with the NFL both on and off the field. Um, it's safe to say that maybe a few things have changed since the first time you stepped onto the farm back in the mid-70s. Uh, take me back to those days. What, what brought you initially to the farm to Stanford football? 
you know, it's funny during this uh, COVID period, one of the things that my wife and I do is we, we take more walks. So after dinner, we'll take a walk, we're walking around the neighborhood. And we started talking last night about just how your, your path ends up at a certain place. And the reason we were doing that is because kind of the Stanford alum from my generation, maybe 76 to about 80, we've been on some Zoom calls almost every um, Saturday, kind of a happy hour thing. You get together, you talk this, you talk about that. And we were talking about how I ended up at Stanford. And in the early 70s, you didn't have the mass communication that you do now where you can get on the internet and find things out. I wanted to go to San Jose State. The reason I wanted to go to San Jose State is when I was 12 years old, the 1968 Olympics from Mexico City were taking mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. And I saw John Carlos and Tommy Smith thrust their hands in the air. And I said, I want to go to school there. I didn't know about a scholarship, didn't know about being on a track team, but I saw these guys and I remember thinking, they were in the Olympics and I wanted to be an Olympian. So I started running around the block. Little did I know that Peyton Jordan, the head coach at Stanford, was the head coach of the 1968 Olympic team. So, you know, years later, um, my senior year, there was a defensive lineman by the name of Curtis Yarborough at Fremont High School. Dave Curry, who was a running back coach and had Southern California, came down to watch Curtis Yarborough play against Washington High, where I played. It was our homecoming. They beat us 42 to 21. I played quarterback. I played safety. I punted it and I kicked off. And after the game was over, Dave Curry must have asked somebody on our staff, what kind of grades does he have? <laughs> and that kind of started this wheel spinning. And then he found out that Peyton Jordan, our track coach, had me on the radar because I was one of the top long jumpers in the state. So it kind of all just kind of fell together. And back then, you could get recruited to unlimited number of schools. So if you were a great high school talent, you would take 20, 30 trips. Everybody wanted you. I took three trips. I went to Colorado, went to New Mexico, and I went to Stanford. And it was, it was a no-brainer. Well, I guess it took brains to get into Stanford. But it was a no-brainer <laughs> where I wanted to go to school. <laughs> and certainly worked out in a major way for you uh, on, on, on the field um, and off as well. Uh, first three seasons uh, that you were there at Stanford, Jack Christensen was the head coach. Right. Uh, 74 big game, probably the highlight of those first three years. And then 77 comes along and in comes some guy named Bill Walsh coming in from Bill. the NFL. Well, what was your impression? What was your first impression of, uh, of Bill Walsh? Well, he, he rounded all the players up. And back then, you, you know, there were no emails, there were no cell phones. So somehow he got all the football players into a meeting in Maples Pavilion. And I remember we were kind of in, in one of the, uh, behind one of the baskets and we're sitting there. And, you know, there are about, about 40, maybe 50 of us. And he said, he said, I'm Bill Walsh. And I want you to call me Bill. I don't want you to call me coach. Because when you call me coach, you're probably putting another bad word in there or something like that. <laughs> so he's talking and, you know, we had had Jack Christensen, who was a really good coach. And Bill goes, he says, and when we travel, we probably won't have a coat and tie rule, but, you know, don't wear those bib of overalls unless you wear a t-shirt underneath them. So we kind of chuckled a little bit and, and you saw the humor that he had. But I remember one time we were on the practice field about four or five weeks into the season. And we were like not on the same page offensively. We were about six or seven plays. And normally a head coach would throw the, you know, notes down and stomp and, and yell and say, you know, you guys got to get it right. We're going back to start. He pulled everybody up. He said, I've been calling bad plays all practice. I'm going to call some good ones so you guys will look good. And, you know, it was little stuff like that that he did that was just unique. And I, you know, now you can look back on history and say, what a great decision to bring him in. And you look even further back and the time that he was with the Cincinnati Bengals and what he learned from Paul Brown and other different people. So he had a, a, a great deal of experience, but he also had a unique way of dealing with people and making you feel better about yourself 
and probably what you really were on the football field. It really seems like that part of it is underrated when you talk about Bill Walsh. I mean, obviously the X's and O's were certainly there, but but his coaching techniques as well and, and relating to people and, and knowing which buttons to push and when, I, I, it, it seems like that kind of gets lost a little bit in the, in, in the story of, of, of Bill Walsh as a coach um, as, as well. No, you're exactly right, because he would instill confidence in you before you had really done it on the football field. We had a, a little, we had Darren Nelson, who was a freshman at the time. Mm -hmm. We had a trap play where the offensive guard in the center on one side blocked down and the other one steps around and he blocks. And Bill, we were trying to run the play. We weren't, the timing was off a little bit. And he said, this play is either going to go for two yards or 25 yards. If you guys block it right, it's going to go for 25 yards. And Darren is going to get a date. Because look at him. He's not a good-looking guy. He won't get a date if he just runs for two yards. And so every time we ran that play, we'd break the head and go, get a date. <laughs> and it was just one of those things where he was able to make the play something that meant something to everybody else, as opposed to just drawing it up on paper and saying, you got to do this, you got to block this guy. He made it real to everybody, and we had fun with it. And based on his career, Darren must have gotten more than a few dates on, uh, <laughs> on the farm during his time there. Uh, take me back to the 1977 Sun Bowl uh, against LSU. That must have been, been a special game. Obviously, back in the Pac-8 days, it was, for the most part, Rose Bowl or nothing until they changed right, the exactly. rules while you were there at Stanford. But here you guys are in the Sun Bowl. You know, take me through the preparation of that week and, and take me through that game as best as you remember it. Well, once again, big picture stuff. Like you said, the Pac-8, it was either Rose Bowl or nothing. And this was the first season where you were eligible for another bowl. And I don't think at the outset of the season that we knew that or that we were even thinking about it. All we knew is we, we had a new coach. We lost the home open, the uh, first away game to Colorado. And so we're kind of going, well, it's kind of like it's been around here before. But to get to play in that bowl game was so special because it, there's a bonding period that goes on when everybody else has gone home and you're on campus for a couple of weeks to practice for a game. And it's so much fun. And then going down to El Paso, we went to this place where you could eat the biggest steaks in the world and all this. But we were so young and so naive. We were just down there to have fun. We didn't even realize that the game was going to be on, quote, national television, which was different at the time. Mm -hmm. Because I think I had only played in two televised games up to that point. You know, because now you think, Everybody's on television every game all the time. So it, that was different. And the fact that we were playing in front of a large audience, you know, now I can go online and find clips of YouTube of that game. And obviously they're very grainy and they look a lot different, but it, it was a blast to get to play in. Burt Reynolds, one of the color commentators yeah. for CBS that day. How about Burt that? Reynolds. <laughs> and, and he was having a good time. It, it, they always talk about that people used to sit in the broadcast booth in the 70s. I think they did. Pat, Pat Summerall, Tom Brookshire, and Burt Reynolds. Yeah, may, maybe yeah. maybe a little bit of that was, uh, was yeah. happening there. Uh, for, you had two touchdowns, by the way. Uh, two touchdown grabs uh, in that game. Stanford went on to beat LSU 24-14. to And after that, it was off to the NFL for you. A first-round pick, uh, number six overall by Green Bay. Uh, fantastic uh, career for you overall. But I want to talk about your years but, with but the Buffalo. Oh, go ahead. Let me just ask you one. So once again, my rookie year, it somehow, I don't know where the interview took place. If he was asked the question, Bill Walsh about week four said James Lofton by the end of the season will be one of the best receivers in the NFL. Huh. I'm going, what? <laughs> because and that's what I meant about him instilling confidence in you before you even had that confidence in yourself and the other thing that I didn't know about Bill Walsh when I was coaching with the San Diego Chargers and there was an NFL opening Bill would call that team and say you need to look at James Loft hmm. so behind the scenes he did things you know you also talk about the uh, minority program that you have with hmm. coaches Bill Walsh was a legendary coach who didn't have to toot his own horn. Yeah, yeah. Denny Green, Willie yeah. Shaw, um, you know, the, the, the list goes on and on and yeah. on um, in, in that respect. Well, the Bill Walsh fellowship that, that you work where the minorities come in and they work with the coaching staff during, during the summer. 
you know, I had it. I had those kids come in when I was coaching with the Chargers. So it was a, it was a blast. And to think that he started it and knew that it was going to be great for the game. Yeah, yeah, certainly has had a huge impact uh, all, all the way throughout. Um, now, Bill said, you know, week four of your rookie season, you're going to be one of the best in the NFL. <laughs> was certainly proven that by the end of your rookie season as you won a few awards uh, league-wide along the way there. I got to ask you about your years with the Buffalo Bills, 89 to 92. And, you know, me growing up, you know, kid in the late 80s, early 90s, watching the NFL and watching football, I still love watching that K-Gun offense, man. Jim Kelly calling the, call the plays. You know, Thurman Thomas, Ken Davis, yourself, Andre Reed making catch after catch over the middle, Keith McKellar, Pete uh, Metzelar, so many weapons on that squad and a pretty good offensive line as well. What made that K-Gun offense so dangerous and so, at that time, revolutionary and so tough to stop around the league? You know, it's funny, you talk about watching games. And I remember, I'm going to go back a couple of years before that. When I was in Green Bay, the VCR was invented. And so you had to get a big VCR. They cost about $1,000 at the time. Mm-hmm. I remember I had, I had a good friend of mine, Mike Douglas, who's a linebacker on the team. I was just with him this past weekend. We were celebrating his wife's birthday and their anniversary. And he had this giant VCR, and he bought it from this appliance store. So he brought it home and he was going to tape the games. I came back the next week over his apartment. He had these huge speakers. I said, what happened to the VCR machine? He said, I couldn't figure out how to hook it up. (laughs) So we weren't as in tune with getting to watch ourselves. We didn't really, you you, you don't even realize that people are watching you on television because you watch the film, you're getting graded, you're getting chewed out, you're getting praised, this and that. But the reason why that that Buffalo Bills offense was so good is we got the other team tired. We went at such a fast pace. And it was something that we had tried at the end of the 1989 season. We're playing the Cleveland Browns in the playoffs. And we went no huddle. And so the next year, we decided we're going to go no huddle. We, we, we don't expose it during preseason. We have a home game against the Indianapolis Colts. We start on the 20. Three or four plays later, we're 30, 40 yards down the field, and our crowd is going wild. I mean, they are so loud. You won't believe this. We had to call timeout. (laughs) We had to call timeout because we could not hear they were that loud. We were trying to run a play every 18 seconds, and we had a really simple offense. So Jim Kelly would complete a pass, or Thurman Thomas would have a run, and as we're running to the line of scrimmage, the formations were zero through nine. So he'd go eight, eight. all know where the formation was. And then the next thing was 90. 90 was a play, the protection, the routes, everything. And we got up and we ran that play so fast. And we, we played against guys over and over and over again. And I remember Sean Jones, who was a, an Ivy League guy, played for the Raiders, the Houston Oilers, after I retired. And we were teammates together with the Raiders. He called me, he said, He said, I don't want you to give me any of the inside information, but I want you to confirm a couple of things for me. Because he he said, I've played against this no huddle offense five times now, and I've picked up some clues. I said, okay, let me hear what they are. He said, Derby is that off-tackle play. I was quiet for a second. I said, what else you got? (laughs) He said, Noah is a deep pass. Well, Derby we changed the snap count to three because the three legs of the Kentucky Derby. Noah, the snap count was on two. The animals boarded the ark two by two. So all he heard was that. He didn't hear the numbers or anything beforehand. He heard when we would change the snap count. And so I, I just, I said, nope, you don't have anything. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was, it, you're right, it was revolutionary. Everybody wasn't doing it, but we really, we had great personnel. We had a great offensive line. You know, you look offensively, you have four Hall of Famers who played on offense at the skill positions. Mm -hmm. And that, that, you know, that's not shaking a stick at anything. Yes, yeah, st- still to this day, the, the, the K-Gun, what the Rams were doing back in the late 90s are still yeah. probably my two favorite offenses in the well, NFL. And, you know, and I saw time. a lot of it from Sean McVay's Rams. Yes. Uh-huh. A little bit more movement and motion and different things like that, but still that fast pace of offense to keep people off guard. 
Yeah, how has the wide receiver position changed? Obviously, uh, the, the you know the, the the way the game has the way the game has played has changed significantly over the past few decades. How has the wide receiver position changed? Because I mean, I can still remember when receivers would get down in three point stances, you know, before the snap, and it's still. I, I got down in down. a three point stance my senior year at Stanford. Yeah, 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 I the did. whole time. But the wide receiver position, I don't think has changed. I think that the defensive back position has changed. When you think about Ronnie Lott, you think about Dennis Smith, who played uh, Joey Browner, these are guys who were all pro and Hall of Famers who in today's game, they'd be broke because of the way that they were able to hit the wide receiver. So that's really where the, the crux of the change has come. And Bruce Smith told me this. He said, it's a one step league now. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, you have one step and you can bump the quarterback. He said, I had three, and I could level them. And that's the biggest difference. So your quarterback really is, if you play it on grass with a little bit of dirt on it, your quarterbacks at the end of the game would still be clean, unless they were sliding on the ground, because they really don't get hit and taken down very often after they throw the football. So that's, that's the biggest change in the NFL. And everybody's bigger, stronger, and faster. And I understand you, you want to highlight these skills but that's really what it boils down to because in the early 70s, if a quarterback completed 50, 52% of his passes, mm-hmm. pretty good. Now you're talking about completing 70% of your passes and really 65% being about the baseline. And here again, you can trace that back in large oh, part to yeah. Bill Walsh. Yeah. <laughs> Short pass, long run. Yeah, yeah. Um, a couple last things here for you. Um, this week marks the one-year anniversary of Andrew Luck's um, retirement. Um, shocking in a lot of respects, still even one year later. Maybe not quite surprising when you think of, uh, of some things that may, maybe uh, potentially led up to it. Uh, what did you make of Andrew's retirement then? And, and, and what still comes to your mind even now when you think of Andrew Luck? I, I, I was heartbroken. Um, my, my son, David, was a high school quarterback and then changed positions at Stanford. And so he was around campus, kind of playing in the CFL and doing stuff like that, but he's working out. And he called me and said, Dad, Dad, we got a quarterback. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I just saw him. Some freshman kid by the name of Luck. He's unbelievable. And Andrew really was unbelievable. And, and unbelievable in his courage. Um, I was doing a game for Sunday night football. Um, the Indianapolis Colts were down playing the Houston Texans. And um, Colts had gotten down. And we had audio, you know, the little mics down on the sideline. And you heard Andrew. They might have been down 17 points in the third quarter. And he was imploring his lineman. He said, just stay with me. Just hang in there. We can pull this out. They pulled it out. They won the game. Fast forward last year when he's with uh, Frank Wright, who had been our backup quarterback in Buffalo, and I'm working for CBS, and I went in to talk to him, and it was when he had come back from the injury. And he was just so thankful to be back around the guys and to get a chance to play again. And for him, you know, there were some people who said, well, the the way he did it and the way it trans, there's no easy way when you're agonizing with a decision once you make that decision and it's a final decision because you don't get a chance to really walk it back. Uh, I know there are some people who are thinking, you know, maybe a a year away, he'll be ready to come back or two years away. He knew that there was life after football and that there was more to the game than just being out on the football field. And he was such a great competitor and such a well-liked person that I grieved for him for a little while but I was really happy with his decision because I felt like he made an informed decision that was best for him and his family and his future. Yeah, well said. And I said it when it happened. I said it even before then, and I'm still saying it now. Football needs Andrew Luck a heck of a lot more than Andrew Luck um, needs football. Uh, As we wrap it up, you're getting ready for another season of the NFL on CBS. I can hear the theme music in my head right now (laughs) as as, as I say this. Uh, Some early season NFL storylines as of right now that are popping up in in your head as we all get ready. We're not going to be watching local Pac-12 football here around these parts. So the NFL maybe gets a bit more uh, attention around here. Uh, what are some early season things you're, you're going to be paying attention to around the league as we, uh, as we uh, move towards the start of the season? 
Well, I think what we're going to see, you know, those reveals where they reveal the gender of the baby that's coming. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to have a lot of that. And the reason I say that and draw that analogy is we don't have any preseason games coming up. So there's no sneak peek. And in a, in a couple of weeks, even footage from training camp will not be available to see right. because everybody's going to go behind closed doors, get ready for that first game. So I think that excitement is going to be something. Uh, there are going to be some stadiums early on that are going to allow some fans in, uh, maybe 20% capacity, maybe even some more in other places. There are going to be some empty stadiums. So we're going to have crowd noise in those stadiums. Uh, so there's a lot of things that are going to be different. Uh, so much so that you think about the home team and, and how players love to get hyped and all that. Is that going to be taken away? Or are you going to pump in the crowd noise when you introduce people? Are you going to introduce the starting lineups? What's going to happen? How are people going to react when, when you, you don't have crowd noise to inhibit the offense from the visiting team? So a, a lot of great things. Um, who's going to be good? Who knows? Kansas City going to be as good as they were last year? Or does Aaron Rodgers have a chance? Uh, Tom Brady, how's he going to look in the Florida sun down in Tampa Bay? So uh, a lot of great storylines. It does revolve around quarterbacks, but really it's all about Stanford. Stanford guys out there. <laughs> of course. How, how many yards is Christian McCaffrey going to drop on the league exactly. this year? Yeah. <laughs> well, one guy who is going to have a fantastic seat for another uh, intriguing, even more so than normal, NFL season this year. You see him all the time on the NFL on CBS and representing Stanford as best as he can. Always great to catch up with the one and only James Lofton. James, thanks a bunch. Always appreciate the time. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Best of luck to you and the family. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you very much. Go Cardinal. Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. Our thanks again to James Lofton for joining us on the show. Yeah, will, will Zach Ertz keep dominating? Can, can Justin Reed uh, keep it up with the Houston Texans? He had a fantastic season both on and off the field last year. Uh, what, what are the impacts that, that Colby Parkinson can have up in Seattle and Casey Tuhill in, in Philadelphia? And as we talked about earlier in the show, you know, what can Bryce Love do with the Washington football team this year? So no shortage of, of Stanford guys who can have big impacts for the NFL season when it is set to go in about two and a half weeks or so from now. So James Lofton will be at the forefront of covering all of that. And man, really some great Bill Walsh stories. <laughs> Get a date, Darren Nelson. Get a date. <laughs> I hope Darren hears that. One of the really nice, truly nice, cool guys I've had a chance to uh, to hang around with over my years of uh, of covering Stanford athletics. But but really cool, really cool stuff um, with James Lofton. I really appreciate him uh, taking the time to break it all down with us. Hope you enjoyed that chat as much as I did. You want to respond? You've got thoughts on anything you've heard on this show, either with James Lofton or with Tony Pauline, uh, who joined us from ProFootballNetwork.com earlier in the show. Best thing to do, hit me up on Twitter, hashtag it TreeCast, hashtag TreeCast. That's the best way to, um, to ensure that I see uh, your thoughts on this show, on Stanford football, on anything that is on your mind in those uh, related uh, topics. Follow me on Twitter at Troy Clarity, at Troy Clarity. Last name is C-L-A-R-D-Y. And if you haven't yet, if you haven't done this already, subscribe to the show, rate and review the show, no matter where you listen to the TreeCast from, on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, iHeart. Uh, subscribe, rate, and review. And hey, react to the show, too, on your favorite friendly neighborhood uh, Stanford football message board. Those are, always, uh, those are always fun to see. We will talk to you next time. Special thanks once again to our guests, Tony Pauline from ProFootballNetwork.com and the Draft Analysts podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. And, of course, James Lofton. Stanford class of 78, Pro Football Hall of Fame class of 2003. Those two guys helped us cover Stanford NFL past, present, and future. Oh, we're, we're getting NFL films music on the way out too? Okay, cool. <laughs> Fine by me. <laughs> we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for being with us. 
Don't drink and drive. If you do, you're the dumbest person on the planet. Just as dumb as the person who refuses to wear a mask. Mask it or ask it. We'll talk to you next time. This is the TreeCast with Troy Clarity. Presented by the Believe Podcast Network. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.